Hello, everybody, and welcome to Bezel Banter, a podcast that covers different topics, including travel, various gear, and of course, watches. My name is Ernesto. Today, I'm absolutely excited to have this next guest on our show. He's somebody that I've admired for a few months now, so he's a new friend of ours. And uh, he's, he's such an interesting person in the fact that, first of all, he's a Canadian watch enthusiast. He's got an amazing Seiko collection, and he's also the founder of York and Front. I'd like to introduce you guys to Henry at Jub Hat. Henry, how are you this afternoon? Doing well, thanks, Ernesto. How are you doing? Good. I am fine, thank you. I'm so excited to have you on here. I know that you and I have, have talked a couple of times in the past, and and uh, you are such an interesting person, and I'm so excited you said yes to come into the show. So I'm looking forward to learning more about you today. That's awesome, man. Thank you very much for the invitation. Uh, you know, I'm equally excited, uh, equally surprised that uh, you'd want to talk to a boring dude like me, but uh, nonetheless, thanks for the kind words. Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> I don't know about that. You know what? Be- before we jump in, though, I'm wondering, what are you wearing on your wrist today? So today is a vintage Seiko, of course, naturally. It's the uh, it's a Lord Marble. So with the 36,000 oh, nice. feet per hour high beat, the 5740 caliber. Uh, this particular one has the linen dial and the Arabic numerals. Um, I think this is one of the more recent editions. Uh, I, I don't think it's the most recent edition, but uh, it's something that just hasn't left the wrist at all. It's been absolutely glued there. Just can't stop looking at it. <laughs> it's a beauty, definitely. What ye- Do you know what year that came out? This one, I think, if I'm not mistaken, uh, 1974. Not as old as some of the other pieces, but uh, old enough, I would say. Yeah, and, and probably a great representation of the quartz crisis at the time, right? Yeah, and I think it's it's just fascinating when you bring up that topic, especially with Seiko, right, being the disruptor at the time. And, um, yeah. you know, I think this is something that you and I have talked about and, and a lot of other collectors is that with the quartz crisis, in hindsight, it looked, our, our view of it was that it almost destroyed the, the Swiss watch industry or mechanical watches. Um, right. But something I think we lose sight about is just how cutting edge and advanced the technology was. And so now when we're going back and buying some of these quartz pieces from them, um, they're just so overbuilt, so over-engineered. They're not the disposable quartz that we're used to today. Uh, I find it fascinating that uh, that it's its own little uh, can of worms, so to speak. No, I agree. With the technology you see in various movements with regards to mechanical watches, we see that progression and evolution, but like you said, with the quartz, we're seeing it too. So, um, especially with brands like Grand Seiko. Yeah, certainly. And I think it's, um, I'm a guilty of this too, right? It's just uh, when you first really dive into watches and you really get, uh, you, you develop that love for the mechanical timepiece, you, you kind of forget that, uh, you know, there's other things out there like quartz itself or, or some form of mecha quartz or even like Seiko's Kinetic, which is a, somewhat of a hybrid precursor to spring drive, right? Um, but then you kind of come full circle and you start to appreciate the engineering or the, the thought behind it. And look at GS's 9F caliber, right? That yes. quartz is yeah. as over-engineered as it can be. So I think there is still uh, room for us to love quartz and, and to really appreciate the engineering behind it. Absolutely. As for myself, I too, because you are our special guest today, I'm also wearing a Seiko. Oh, yeah, man. Um, and this Seiko is actually... One of my favorites that have come out in the modern iteration, and it is the um, SLA 017, which is the reissue of the 62 Moss. Oh, that's a beautiful piece. And there's such a 
simplicity to the 62 mass design um mm. just the straight lines like the the case is nothing too like you know faceted or curvy it's just it looks good it does a, a very well pronounced job being a sports watch or a tool watch look looked great back then looks great now man yes yes absolutely thank you and so i've got about three million questions <laughs> that i have on this one sheet of paper that i want to ask and, and I, maybe we can just go ahead and start delving in to uh learn a little bit more about you. Sounds like a plan. So Henry, uh, how did you get started into watch collecting? What, what got you started? That's a great question, Ernesto. Like I, I've thought about this a lot because it's obviously a question that comes up within the enthusiast communities. Like, how did you get started or when did you get started? Uh, it goes back to my childhood. I think I was maybe four or five. My dad gave me my first watch. It was like a teal it had a teal band or, or strap and it was a white dial. It was a Mickey Mouse watch. So typical, you know, Mickey's hands would tell the hour and the minutes. And I just remember, I love the thing to death and it was just phenomenal. And I wore it everywhere. And I don't remember the context of the story, but something happened. And my dad was going back home to Asia to visit family. And he's like, you should give that to your younger cousin. And so I reluctantly did. And I was out without the watch. And I just remember feeling that there was a hole in my life that, mm. uh, you know, I was never without it. So I think that really kind of reinforced the, uh, the whole initial instinct of I need another watch. And I'm, it's not just that watch in particular, I think. It was just so used to having a watch on wrist. Um, but just being fascinated just by the fact that this little thing could tell you time I inevitably went through, I think through junior high, like the, the bulk of your fashion watches and thinking, mm. I, I saw her, it was hilarious, <laughs> but I remember in grade seven it was, I ended up getting a Guess Water Pro watch. And I was thinking in my head, I'm like, this is end game. You could never do better than this. This is, I'll never right, need the another guess. watch. Right, the Guess watch. <laughs> and I still have That's it. That's awesome. And oh, I look okay. at it every once in a while. It's, it makes me laugh, makes me smile, but I keep it for sentimental reasons uh, still Absolutely. tells time yeah that's cool yeah <laughs> and that's when i that's at that point the internet started getting pretty um mainstream so i mean now that i'm feeling a little old saying that but uh you know <laughs> jumping on the internet after school and and surfing around forums were just like bare bones back then but time zone was alive and um other forums were there and so you started reading about seikos and and some of these other pieces that were already many people into these things at the time and i remember distinctly being fascinated by mechanical timepieces because we're used to having these watches that were telling you time batteries and now you're you're reading about wow you can tell time with an entirely mechanical device and that just blew right. my mind as a you know in grade seven grade eight um so i went down that rabbit hole and i remember again distinctly it's like is the Seiko 5 a good watch? And in hindsight, it's kind of you laugh at that concept because it's your typical classic entry gateway to this hobby or this drug. And mm -hmm. uh, so I concluded or, or decided that I wanted a Seiko 5. And there was one particular I saw at the local jewelry store. Um, it was a Seiko 5 Superior. I can't remember the reference, but uh, really nice kind of uh, tapestry dial and, and just a ton of detail. And... Uh, at the time, I was washing dishes as a part-time job, and so saved for months and months, and then went and uh, 
spent a couple hundred bucks on this thing and never looked back. <laughs> See, that's awesome because like everybody's watch journey is all relative. Mm-hmm. I mean, people start at different places, you know, people start with different watches, but when you look back and you think about that journey, you're kind of like, oh, wow, this is really neat where I am today and where I came from. And it's neat that you have that guest watch still. <laughs> you're making you're making me think about the Mickey Mouse watch, though. Was that watch um, hand wound? No, that one was actually battery. I think if I'm not mistaken, and again, this is just going back so long, but I in hindsight, I think what I, it was likely a, a Loris or, or some form of like a Seiko or Citizen, um, okay. just rebranded um, or one of their their sub brands, if you will. Um, but yeah, it was it was quartz, and uh, I remember listening to it ticking, you know, with the normal quartz jumping secondhand. Uh, yeah. It would have been cool if it was manual wine, though. Yeah. I, I, I want to say I remember when I was a kid, I had a Mickey Mouse watch too, but I remember having to wind it. Oh, and I don't think it was cool. like an expense, but I don't think it was expensive at all. I mean, like it was just one of those, it was a manual wind thing and I don't know how many hour power reserve it is. It was, but I, I don't even know what happened to that watch, but now I'm thinking about it and I'm going to be stuck thinking about that. Right. <laughs> it's funny when uh, the conversation comes up about your first watch, it's like, that's in a drawer somewhere. It must be. I need to find this thing. Right. <laughs> I don't know where that drawer is now. <laughs> so no, that's cool. So you, you started as a as a kid really young but have you always been intrigued in seiko like is that something that you've just kind of because your collection is insane you you have so many different iterations of seiko and really grand seiko that's also an interesting question i think that might be a relation to just my general interest like i think from as far as i can remember i always had an affinity towards japan for whatever reason i'm Chinese background, but uh, growing up, I always just, you know, your first introduction to Japan is probably like, you know, cartoons and anime and stuff. So, oh, that's really cool. And then as you get a little older, you start reading about other things. And then I just distinctly remember being just when I saw Seiko and I started reading about the the quality at the price point that was accessible. Because really, you know, when you're, when I was starting to look at buying that first Seiko 5, you're not making a ton of money. And so, you're really looking for that value or bang for the buck and everything kept reiterating that Seiko was as best as you could do from a value proposition for what you're getting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it was just after the first one that Seiko five superior. And then after that, because that was address your piece, I went and decided that I wanted to add my second watch and you know how that whole story goes. Uh, right. But wanted more of a sporty watch for the second one. So, um and this is a bit of a funny story but it was the seiko monster the original skx 779 i think and i remember seeing this on the forums thinking that's the ugliest watch i've ever seen who the heck would buy that thing and that was cross shopping that against the skx 007 which is modern day legend right right i ended up buying the monster uh, and it was oh. just something that it was so polarizing that i couldn't stop looking at it and when you don't stop looking at it, you start thinking about it, and that's the end of that story. But um, so go back to your question. When I added that to the mix and that arrived from overseas, um, it was just like the build quality was just another level. It was so solid. It was so heavy. It just, the loom was crazy. It felt like a real, really high-end piece. And at the time, I, I don't think they were much more, if anything, sub $300, if you can believe such a thing. Oh, wow. um 
so once I had those two in my mind, I was convicted and I was hooked. It was just they make made such incredible pieces then in the present and mm-hmm. now as a collector and having a deeper understanding of their really past catalog from you know 60s, 70s, 80s, they've done some seriously impressive stuff. And so I think that love has just grown over time by virtue of just having chosen that as a starting point. Fantastic. You know, when I look at your Instagram, and we'll of course link that to uh, to this show. But um, when I look at your Instagram, there are so many different types of Seiko and Grand Seiko in here. And I see you do tend to gravitate towards the the vintage side of that spectrum. Um, and then, you know, when I look here, too, you have some modern pieces in there, too. I mean, like I see a tuna in here. And, mm-hmm. and what's funny to me when I'm looking through this, there's a pattern. It's like Seiko, 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 Grand Seiko. And then it keeps going. And then like every seventh day, there's like a speed mask. <laughs> and then it goes back. <laughs> so, uh, you, you can't miss Speedy Tuesday. Man. You, you have you to can't. wrap. <laughs> right. Right. So all, it's all Grand Seikos and Seikos. And then like the, the homage to the Omega Speedmaster pops in there. That's awesome. Oh, so good. So how would you describe yourself as a collector? Uh, I'm the kind of collector, I think, uh, who buys and just doesn't sell. I tend to sit on watches that I buy forever and every once in a while something goes, but I think that's just really a byproduct of, I buy what I really like. And Mm -hmm. so when you really like something and it really makes you happy or speaks to you, you just really don't have an inclination towards selling it. Even if, you know, there's, there's pieces that I've bought where now you look at the way prices have gone. It's like, Oh, you could totally sell this, make money and put that towards something else. But then, I can't shake the feeling of then I would regret letting something that kind of makes me happy go and how hard would it be to replace that? So um, I tend to look for pieces that um, suit kind of not necessarily different needs or or different um, moods, if you will, but I I don't specifically say I want to watch it does it all. Like I, I, because the collection is fairly large, um, it's okay to have pieces that fit a certain niche in, in regards to having watches that fit a certain profile or a certain duty or, or job. Um, that's cool because there's, there's several pieces in my collection or there's many pieces in my collection that do the same thing, but they all have a certain unique character or vibe to them and, or a certain attribute that makes me happy. So I think really that's a key theme. It's just that you, you just don't know. You just intrinsically feel that that's pretty cool. Um, yeah. And I think the one thing someone brought out and I thought was interesting because I had never realized it was they said that my collection was quite, it's very Seiko heavy, but it's quite varied in the sense that there's a ton of vintage, there's a ton of modern, but there's also dressy Seikos. There's a, there's then a lot of sports or diver Seikos. So it covers a gamut of, of different styles. And I think in my day job, one of those suit and tie type jobs where yeah the dress pieces and the vintage pieces work marvelously but um i'll do something crazy and wear a monster with the suit from time to time just because you can why not that's cool i remember i remember wearing a metal g-shock with a suit and you know it's kind of like a punk rock kind of vibe feel that you when you do stuff like that but then half the people that aren't really even into watches they're not paying attention they're like they have their Apple Watch and they're happy. So, and there's nothing wrong with Apple Watch. <laughs> well, Apple Watch, you can unlimited dials, right? You just hit the mood of the day. So totally something totally. to be said. So it's got its place. Uh, but it's so true. Like I think that whole that's a whole discussion in its own right. Like 
what's okay to wear with a suit or what's okay to wear with jeans. And I think, again, if it makes you happy, then um, yeah, there will always be people who have an opinion and we're all entitled to our opinion. But uh, as long as, you know, it works for you, man, like that's kind of how I operate. Um, there, there's this one story. I remember we were at a, a corporate function and the CEO of our, our firm was uh, walking around doing the rounds and he walked up and we were chatting and naturally I look at his wrist. What are you wearing? And he had a Timex Iron Man on, but on the Velcro like band and everything. And it was just hilarious because, you know, the guy could buy pretty much whatever he wants, but he said, that's what does it for him. And, you know, all the power to him. So I think the next yeah. day after that, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to put that monster on and go to work. That's awesome. So as a collector, what are some of the most important things to you when identifying which watches are coming into your collection? When I first started seriously collecting, um, it was more of a scenario where if I was looking for a piece, I would look for the best entry point in terms of price uh, because mm -hmm. I, younger, um, so income's a little bit less disposable. You need to be more cognizant of what you're spending. So I was very much looking for the best deal possible. And as, as times pass, I've gotten older and, and grown in my career, it give it, it's given more flexibility. Now the key is very much condition and quality. Um, and I think that was actually not something, that's something that you see people talk about, but that was something I learned firsthand because I remember buying, um, it was my first SKX, I believe. I have several mm -hmm. and, and a lot of them are modified and, and just good fun. But the first one I bought secondhand and it was a really great price because it was completely beat up. And just when I had that piece, it was cool because the, the naturally earned patina, it was you know, it did his job as a tool watch, but then the bezel was loose. Um, the seals were dead. So those had to get rebuilt. And it was just a function where um, the dial had water damage, I think, uh, because it wasn't, mm -hmm. it wasn't even, but it was definitely spotty. So at the end of the day, it wasn't a piece that I really fell in love with just because every time I looked at it, I was like, I wish it was a little cleaner of an example. And then not long thereafter, I got my first 6309 turtle. And same thing, it was completely beat up, but I got it for steel. And again, when I got the wash, the crown was really, really sticky. Um, it wasn't keeping great time. So obviously needs service, but then even after service, there were issues because the threads were kind of cross-threaded partially. So it just, you can never trust that it would not be watertight, but even just, you know, if there's moisture in the air and whatnot with vintage pieces, you just kept worrying. So I think, um, Ultimately, when I had an opportunity to purchase, you know, like a brand new SKX 007, and I found a really nice condition 6309, actually from a fellow who brought it to Canada with him from the Philippines, and it was an absolute mint condition, this turtle, but it had the most custard, clean, creamy uh, markers and hands had aged like exactly the same across the board, and it was uh obviously a lot more money than the first 6309 i bought but um that stayed in the collection and that's something i still have and, and enjoy to this day that's cool so i'm curious how many watches do you have in your collection i think last i checked it was about 32 33 okay so it's not insane it's not inconsequential i had my a colleague ask it's like you literally wear a different watch every day. It's like, yeah, I have enough for every work day of the week or of the month. Sorry. <laughs> That's great. I mean, cause when you look through your Instagram, 
you'll see some duplications here and there, but it's like, you know, you have, you can see that you have a pretty sizable collection. Yeah. Variety is the spice of life, right? Yeah, totally. Totally. The other thing that you just kind of mentioned is that you like doing mods and I've seen some of the mods you've done. They're very unique. Um, so you're kind of like a, like a tinkerer. And I don't mean to say that in a bad way, but you like to tinker and kind of, kind of almost engineer minded, if you will. Yeah. I think, uh, you kind of nailed it, man. Like to your original question there, it's like, what kind of collector are you? It's like, I just am fascinated by how things work. Um, always wanted to be an engineer, but sadly I wasn't good enough at physics to actually follow through with that dream. So it's okay. But I think the, uh, the engineer's mindset's there. Um, it's something I picked up young from my dad. He um, mm -hmm. was in skilled trades and, and so was always working his hands, always building, deconstructing, rebuilding, improving uh, things. So it just stuck with me and, and watches are, are the same thing. So I think once I, interestingly, it was uh, my first Lord Marvel. Um, it, I bought it from a fellow uh, Toronto Red Bar enthusiast who I didn't know at the time and now we're good friends, but we met up locally off the classifieds and I picked it up. Um, it was a great watch. And then um, just due to age, due to nothing of his fault, the mainspring failed and uh, my local watchmaker wasn't able to source parts for it. So I, I felt kind of devastated because I'm like, this is such a cool piece, the high beat movement, all that, but um, now it doesn't run. So I thought about it and I'm like, well, you know what, maybe I'll tackle buying a, a donor watch that's just really beat up, but maybe, I'll, I'll practice. I'll learn how to set hands. All I'm doing is dial swap onto a new movement, reset the crown and everything good to go. And I ended up finding a, a really beat up uh, Lord Marvel um, from Japan, but uh, the movement was pristine. And so a lot of sweat, a lot of nerves, and I managed to do that transplant. And after kind of, it was just actually kind of crazy now to think about that. That was the first watch I did such a operation on. Um, but after that experiment, it was like, okay, I think I, I've got a good handle on how this works and started modding ISKX is just because at the time they weren't discontinued. So there's an abundance of secondhand XKX, SKXs, excuse me. And right. parts were really starting to come online with uh, third-party vendors, um, you know, hands, dials, um, you know, you could, anything you could think of really, someone was making a part for it where you could kind of piece it together. So uh that's something i've really enjoyed and it's another way to kind of express your personal style preferences or interests i think you know what i find unique about listening to you <laughs> is i'm thinking of the fact that you like the design you change a design you are tinkering you're using your hands and then on the other side of the coin you're also the founder of York and Front, which I'd love to get in with you a little bit in our conversation. But I would have to think that some of that maybe stemmed or ignited that passion to start York and Front. Is that true? Uh, yeah, I, I would say that's kind of bang on because how did that start? That whole story was like no jokes. It was almost like a drunken bet between friends. We, uh, oh, that's good. That's good. <laughs> as all things in life, you know, it's a couple of friends, a few too many drinks, and other uh, decisions you wake up the next morning and regret, or you wake up you're like, hey, we might be onto something. But uh, right, right. Uh, I bet you can't do this. One of those deals. <laughs> it's like watch me. <laughs> no, but uh, joke aside, it was really. Uh, I think I've told this story a few times, um, but it was. It was. We were drinking. We were talking about the ideal single watch collection because, I mean. 
does such a thing even exist? I don't know. Maybe not for us, yeah. but for some it may. Um, but it was like, what's a good solidarity wear look like? And so we started running through scenarios and like, yeah, it exists, but then I would change this attribute or it exists, but then it's just way too expensive for the average person. So I'd end up being like, yeah. well, if we could do it, how would you design one? And then that just led to another thing. And then inevitably we, we came up with the Berard or, and then, um, my business partner and I, Eric, were like, well, you know what, let's just go for it. Let's make two prototypes, one for you, one for me. And we'll have our own unique pieces, which is super cool in its own right. And sure. uh, once we had the prototypes done, we were kind of like, oh, this is really nice. Like perhaps if we're asking these questions, then there's got to be other enthusiasts looking for the same solution ultimately. So that's what kind of drove us down that path. And like, let's give it a go. It's a passion project. It's a project from heart. And to your point, it really was a byproduct of the fact that just the most fun part of that whole process was playing with design, just going through iterations of different hands, different fonts for the, the numerals, different um, placements in terms of like the minute track and, and really just every minute detail you don't think about. Like mm -hmm. one good example of that is the, the lugs themselves are fairly short because it's the watch dimensions are 38 mil diameter, 12 mil thickness, 44 mil lug to lug. So for those Seiko enthusiasts out there, those sound familiar because it's identical to the Seiko Sarb. And how I came to that is I always thought that watch wore well, wore brilliantly. And so I just took calipers to it, measured it out, and that's our baseline. Yeah, um, no, that's cool. But yeah, with that being said, one of the interesting things you learn going through the design process is you don't think about how much thought goes into a watch. Like for the drilled lug holes, which was a must have because I personally prefer my watches on straps. So nothing worse than fiddling around, scratching up the back of your lugs. Uh, when yeah. we put those in, my uh, manufacturing partner forgot on the original design drawings. When I went back, they actually notified me, well, it's going to change a lot of the lug design because the holes where they need to be actually destroy your character line that runs straight through the bevel. So it took a little bit of engineering, but we got around that. But it's you don't think that that's right because they're if you just drill a hole straight through the side where they need to be, and there's like a line right there, that's not aesthetically pleasing. So yeah. that whole journey is all just driven by the love of design, the love of watches and tinkering, like you said. And I want to take a deeper dive in a little bit on that stuff. Definitely. Certainly. Because I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued. I've never really spoken with an, an independent watch developer, designer, if you will. Right. I mean, like, you are the founder of York and Front Watches, and I think there's some symbolism in there that I'd like to, you know, talk about as well too. But Certainly. going back to your collection, um, what are some of the important pieces that in your collection? So when we're looking at your Instagram, or you put a post out, we kind of have an idea of boy, that, that's a special piece that Henry just put up. Yeah. So I think um, we talked about the two, the Seiko Five Superior, which I really should wear more. Um, just because that's really the genesis of all of this. Um, again, the first gen monster, because that's really what solidified this obsession around Seiko and, and uh, collecting watches. Uh, but I think from a sentimental point of view, um, the, I forget the reference, the SBGA triple one, SBGW triple one. 
Um, but nonetheless, it's my Grand Seagull Spring Drive. That okay. piece with the, uh, I think some some folks have to call it the tatami dial. Uh, that one's remarkably like striking in a person because the dial is so intricate. In photos, it looks absolutely crazy, the amount of detail that's on it. Um, but in the metal, it's even more dynamic. It's even more um, distracting, if you will, because when I have on a wrist, I really don't get any work done. Is that the one with the dial that looks like it's like a, a waffle? Like yeah. It looks like a is it the waffle? Dial? Exactly. That's the one. Yeah. Okay. No, that's beautiful. Oh, I thank you, that. man. That So the story behind that watch and why it's the most important to me in my collection is that was a wedding gift from my wife. And oh wow yeah that's a cool present and it's crazy how she came to that conclusion so the story there was um, obviously she knew i had a watch problem and <laughs> and that i was constantly <laughs> on the watch train and, um, and she still married you she still married me uh that's an awesome woman she she's very <laughs> understanding let's put it that way yeah so, nice to her and i'm very lucky to have her but uh at the time gs wasn't widely available internationally they hadn't gone international yet but I remember her asking me just kind of casually, it's like, if you had to pick a Grand Seiko or an Omega Speedmaster, which would you pick and why? And although the Speedmaster isn't a Seiko, but it's been very high on my wish list for a long, long time, just because as an enthusiast, you kind of almost have to dabble in a Speedmaster, whether it's for a period of time or for life, it's an experience that's warranted, I think, or a must do. Um, at the end of the day, I, I just hold her the GS just because at the time, rare and kind of flew under the radar. And the fact is, it's my love for Seiko is strong. And this is like big name Seiko. This is like Seiko doing the best it can. Um, right. So that's super cool. And I was like, Spin Drive is like just the craziest technology because at the time it was still, uh, I wouldn't say new because this particular watch celebrates the 10th year anniversary of Spring Drive. Um, so it is, it was a limited edition piece for the Japanese market. Um, but so she kind of was like, okay, if that's what you're into, she kind of quietly behind the scenes kind of, uh, worked with her parents who are in Japan and they, she picked this piece and had her dad track one down and, and bring it with him, uh, when he came over for the wedding. So it was just a big shock and, and just so thoughtful. And, uh, so the, mm. not only is it a super cool launch with the sentimentality behind it, the thoughts. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Kept money. Well, this is Grand Seiko, like you said, doing its doing its thing and doing its best. And I sound like a broken record every time I talk about a Grand Seiko dial. But their dials are just hypnotic. I mean, you can start really looking at that watch that you have and the detail between even the minute track and then if you go within that minute track. There are all these little hash marks in there too, and 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 just the different patterns that they throw on that dial. It's just mesmerizing. It, it's, I don't know how they do it to be honest, uh, because we look at for for your confront, we talk about watches. I mean, we have very plain dials on that by design, but like trying to interject like detail and talking to the manufacturer of what's required, it kind of makes you even more confused. Like, how does Seiko do some of the, what they do? Because um, it's right. detail on top of detail. The one detail I, I'm just fascinated by, and I, I'll spend like literally an hour staring at under under a loop, is Seiko has a way, or Grand Seiko has a way of printing text on top of texture on the dial in a really super clean way. There's no bleed. It's perfectly uniform. There's like height to the, the printed text. 
and yet it's they don't shortcut it they don't kind of create a flat spot where they print on they'll literally print over that in in this set this case this that kind of waffle tapestry texture and mm -hmm. i don't know how they do it but it's it's just crazy amount of quality um and again you know any enthusiasts will talk about you know the zaratsu polish and whatnot and it is hypnotic the first time you have it in hand and you see it and there's no distortion or reflection um it's like how can something be so shiny it's crazy and again the story behind this particular grand seiko i mean that's what creates that the sentimentality mm -hmm. and the story behind and the meaning behind it that's why that's i could see that being one of the top most important in your collection are there any other timepieces in your collection that have a significance and importance to them? Yeah, so the, and I would say if my collection, and this is a question that's come up, if, if my collection had to whittle down to the two watch collection, you had to let go of everything else, what two would you keep? It's a lot of pressure, first it's of all. I'm just saying that. <laughs> that's <laughs> a lot of pressure. I thought long and hard about this one, and yeah, obviously the GS days, but the second piece, which is, uh, again, very, very important to me, is not a Seiko, interestingly. It's my Seamaster, the 2254.50 reference. And uh, the story behind that one was it's sentimental to me because it, it kind of symbolized my growth as a, I don't want to say a collector, but as an enthusiast and, and throughout my growth through you know, student life and into adult life, getting your first job. But um, Back in high school, you know, starting to be really into watches and, and with the two Seikos down hand, watching James Bond rock a uh, Omega Seamaster, you're like, how cool is that? I want a Seamaster. Yeah. But obviously at a high school uh, student level, that's unfathomable to to own a watch at that price point or that league, right? So it's it was yeah. always a dream. And so through university, um, working and, and saving and then uh, finishing my degree in landing the first job that first year after work, um, having completed sorry, a first year of work, I decided now is the time to kind of celebrate and, and to reward myself for the journey. And so I bought a uh, 2254 off of time zone, the sales corner. Uh, it was a seller out of California and he had bought it off his friend who was, so he was a second owner, I'm the third owner. And I still have all the boxes and pictures and everything. And they're stamped with the uh, the Feldmar uh, stamp on it. So it's funny interacting with some of the Feldmar guys on Instagram. I'm like, oh man, my Seamaster came from you guys like 15 years ago, brand new in box. So it's kind of cool to see these these uh, relationships and people you meet on Instagram. But uh, just that watch is so important to me just because of how long I wanted it and, uh, and the fact that it kind of symbolizes that whole journey, that growth. And that's exactly what you and I have talked about before in the past. It's like, you know, these are all just inanimate objects, but the story that are tied to it, when you look back, there's so much fate mm -hmm. in how your collection ended up happening. There are watches that I've, I've wanted in my collection, but I just won't get, and that's okay, because that's not what my collection is gonna end up being defined as, mm -hmm. you know, at the end game. And so I think it's really neat like to put these milestones, put these accomplishments, rites of passages in your life and tie that to that watch. Very cool. It's it's so meaningful and it, it just brings such an extra dimension to this hobby because I think um, 
I'll share a story that actually happened last week um, and, and digressing out of my collection a little bit, but it's on the topic of significance and milestones. So with York and Front, I had a customer reach out to me locally here in Toronto and he asked, uh, would it be possible to meet in person so I could take a look at both the white and the black dial and decide in, in the metal? I said, absolutely. So I met up with this, uh, this person after work and he was absolutely enamored by both and ended up picking one. Um, and he told me the story and he's like, I moved to the city, you know, give it 10 years ago for work. And now I'm moving back to the city I originally came from. I wanted something to remember Toronto by. And I've always wanted my first like real watch. And I was like, oh, I, I would have assumed you were an enthusiast already because that was our kind of target audience. It's like, oh, I've, I've got some fashion brands, but I, I wanted like a proper watch with a Swiss movement, automatic, something super cool. And he just, I love the aesthetic of your watch, but it's important, more importantly, it's, it represents Toronto, the hometown and, or my hometown, his adopted town. And uh, just to hear a customer say that and, and to mark a milestone that they're leaving, they're going back home and they want to bring a piece of it and they're choosing this watch to do so. It, it's humbling. Uh, and it, I'm just, I still can't wrap my head around that. That's so cool. First of all, that's awesome. I mean, that's got to give you all those warm feelings. It does. So for some of the listeners that aren't maybe from Canada or that aren't familiar with the history of York and Front, do you mind sharing how that name came about and how it relates to um, the significance of Toronto? Certainly. Um, so I think for those who don't know, I'm here in Toronto, Canada. My business partner, Eric, he's in Vancouver. So we met at work in Toronto. We we both worked mm -hmm. for the same firm and he was actually in Toronto for a, an internship. So it was temporary we knew that, but becoming good friends. And you know, I knew right away we'd be good friends because he was the only guy, he was sitting there beside me. He's like, dude, you wear a different watch every day. Like, oh, you notice. Yeah. So obviously astute enough, but uh, we started talking watches and just became great friends after that amongst other things. But when we wanted to start this watch brand, um, we wanted to pay homage to Canada because that's where we are from. But also there's not as many Canadian micro brands. There's definitely more now. There's a few that have come on recently and that's great to see, super exciting. And you got Helios out in Vancouver, who's one of the golden mm -hmm. standards of micro brands. So that's super cool. But um, when we picked, when we went to pick a name, again, it's one of those things you don't realize that a lot of thought is going to. And so how do you pay respect to where you come from? Let's pick some street names, re represent the city you're from. And so York and Front, the intersection of that is a major one downtown Toronto. Um, but the significance that we trying to be a little, little mushy or sentimental, it's like, well, what does the brand represent? The brand represents watches that are do everything, you know, dress them up for the office, wear them down casually, going out for a hike or doing some paddle boarding or canoeing, and it'll do it all, they'll do it all wonderfully. So mm -hmm. York and Front, that intersection, uh, is also where Union Station has one of their, their entrances. And it's our main transit hub in the city. And so people coming to Toronto for work, obviously, but people come down for the nightlife, the entertainment, pre-COVID. Uh, right. But <laughs> so the philosophy was the same, right? This this station or this this junction is, is where you meld fun and work. And so it represented the brand really nicely. And then there's other little details you don't think about. It's like, well, when you're, putting a name or a text on a dial, if it's a two-part name and they're not almost uniform in length, 
it looks a little unbalanced. Mm-hmm. So you want the same amount of characters in front and behind the ampersand, or at least as close as possible. So, right. you know, something like Young and Wellington, well, that's a little long and that, you know, it doesn't ring as nicely or, or you know, King and Bay, well, that's a little too, for those, for people from <laughs> Toronto, they'll understand. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's interesting. And we named the Watch the Barard in the same manner because Eric's from Vancouver and that's their kind of main street down Vancouver. And it's a way to tip our hat at both of our hometowns. That's a fantastic story. I love that. So I'm curious if you had a new watch enthusiast coming on board, Mm -hmm. he's starting to get into the watches and he starts zoning, or I should also say she, he or she starts zoning into watches and maybe even Seiko how would you guide them or direct them or encourage them to look at specific pieces from Seiko or Grand Seiko? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I would say right now for someone new coming into the, the hobby itself, there's probably been no better time because the amount of different watches available, the not just from Seiko, but from every kind of manufacturer and going beyond your mainstream like for those who are willing to endeavor into the microbrand space, and I'm not saying this as a microbrand operator, but just the fact that there's so many people doing super cool things and, and unique design traits or or watches that, you know, push the boundaries of, of what, you know, is creative. Like some mainstream brands, you don't, like Rolex is the best example, right? It's a, uh, you, you can't mess with the Rolex formula. That's why they have Tudor. They can be experimental. They can push the boundaries a little. But vanilla is very, or sorry, Rolex is very vanilla Rolex for a reason. So it is. I think they're safe. Yeah, right. And that's because of the brand value. And so you see that some of the main brands will be a little bit more creative and, and reach out. But um, the micro brands are where the most kind of interesting things are happening. Um, mm-hmm. It's a way to differentiate, do something crazy, do something different. But going back to Seiko, I think um, the other challenge with Seiko and everything else is that. Know, supply, although there's a lot of different available models, supply is kind of tight now because there's definitely a lot of people buying. There's a lot of demand, a lot of interest. We've seen price points rise. So it is tricky from that regard that it was easier to buy something like a 6309 in the past. It was easier to buy the SKX for $200. Now you're looking double that uh, for a clean example. So I would say to anyone new coming in, um, I think it's just leverage the community, like talk to people, connect with people. Instagram's a fantastic platform because it's so visual. Because if you see something you like, don't be afraid to DM that person, ask them, learn from them, talk to them, um, get a better understanding of what's out there. And then comes the not so fun part of trying to figure out, okay, well, what's the budget and what can I swing and um, what's available at that point. But I think what's really important is just doing your research. And right now there's, more resources available to, to people than there ever has been. Um, but I still think that, you know, the Seiko 5 is, there's so many types and there's so many Seiko 5s unique to different markets globally um, that you can find on eBay and, and other platforms. Uh, you have access to just a lot of cool stuff for a really good price point. And that's people, a lot of people say that's a great entry point and that's kind of a gateway for a good reason. Um, it really mm-hmm. is. I don't think it's just mouth service to the fact that they're cheaper watches. It's they offer good value. Um, 
vintage Seiko as well, now that there's so much literature and, and information available, um, you can really educate yourself as to what is a good buy from a vintage point of view, what, you know, um, downfalls, pitfalls to these pieces, you have to kind of keep in mind, like the 56 caliber movements tend to, their date wheel uh, advancing, like little gears, plastic, and they tend to blow up after 50 years. So uh, get ready to splurge on a metal date wheel, uh, little star gear. But uh, nonetheless, these are things that you can really pick up going through forums, talking to people. Uh, I think that's a great place to start. And then ultimately, I think going back to the previous part of the discussion, just buy what makes you happy. You know, it's it's mm -hmm. easy to follow the hype because the hype train is, is very real and we see that across the board. Um, you know, we all fall prey to it to a certain degree, I think, but uh, end of the day is, um, even if it's not the most popular piece out there, if it puts a smile on your face, that's that's where you go. That's the right piece. Yeah. That becomes the right piece. No, that's cool. That's a great advice. I appreciate you sharing that with our listeners. Um, you and I have a friend in common, mm -hmm. and his name is Daniel at wonger.bonger. And I know that you and Daniel, you guys are really tight friends. You guys have been friends for many years. And um, I know both of you guys are whiskey guys. <laughs> so you, you, you we, we share that commonality that we enjoy the brown liquor. Um, we like that either bourbon or whiskey or rye. Mm -hmm. And I was just kind of curious, like, have you stumbled upon any whiskeys out there that like really caught you off guard in a good way and that you would recommend? Oh man, it perfect bottle for this question is, uh, so Daniel and I, we just, uh, a few weekends ago, we, we took a week off to head up into the, the countryside for a bit of, uh, relaxation R and R and we brought a bunch of whiskey with us as we naturally do. But, uh, oh, I oh, picked nice. up a bottle called the, uh, the Totori by the Matsui distillery. And, uh, Totori is a prefecture, a province in Japan, um, northern part of the main island that's it's quite famous for the fact that it's i think the most sparsely populated uh, prefecture of them all but they have these incredible sand dunes like if you see it just an image of it it's almost like you're in the middle of the sahara if you don't see the coast uh, so it's hmm. super unique but uh so this distillery put out this whiskey and it's so unique because the flavor profile is unlike anything i've ever tasted like it's and i don't know if it's just the bias knowing that it's a japanese whiskey uh, but Daniel and I both had the same reaction. We're like, wow, there's a lot of like Asian type flavor influences. Like we got a lot of tea out of it. We had a lot mm. of uh, like certain Asian spices or herbs. Um, what's interesting is there was a certain unique initial taste to it. That's a bit sweet, but a bit vegetal. And I couldn't place it for like half the trip. I kept thinking, what is this flavor? I know it so well. And it doesn't last forever, but it comes on initially. And then it, it fades into a bit of maltiness and into like a nice bit of dryness um, mm -hmm. and a quite kind of sweet tea, like ginseng sweet finish. Oh, interesting. So the initial flavor, it turned out, I realized halfway through the trip, it tastes a lot like tequila. And it's so oh. weird because it doesn't sound like it would work, like a tequila, but it's perhaps the, like maybe the agave or, or whatever it, that imparts that uniqueness to tequila, and excuse my ignorance because I'm not uh, well-versed in tequila, uh, it has that same note to it. So I thought that was fascinating. Interesting. And uh, it wasn't a very hard to get nor um, 
prohibitively expensive model. So hopefully mm-hmm. uh, your listeners and, and can find it. I think for the value, it's it's worth a try. Say the name one more time. And what, what I'll do is I'll make sure that I, I will link in, uh, you know, what what that particular whiskey Certainly. is. What is it again? It's uh, it's by the Matsui, M-A-T-S-U-I uh, distillery, and it's called the Totori, T-O-T-T-O-R-I. Awesome. Thank you for that tip, my friend. I appreciate welcome, that. We'll, we'll have to, everybody will have to comment. If you guys end up trying this whiskey out, you'll have to put in the comments what your take was on that whiskey. So very cool. And do you normally drink then your whiskeys neat? Do you throw an ice cube in there? How do you do it? What's the magic over on your end? I do like it neat. Yeah. Usually, unless it's cash strength, then I'll, I'll put a little water in there. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm pretty pretty uh, old school that way. Just take it neat and carry on. Same. I like that. That's Good cool. Good choice, man. Very nice. Um, you, you know what? You're a car guy. So um, what kind of cars do you tend to lean towards? I'm pretty sure it's no surprise when I say Japanese. <laughs> 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 uh, but no, it's funny. It's uh, I think I mentioned this before, kind of one of our conversations. But my wife just kind of pokes fun at me. She's like, "All oh, you guys like the same things: cars, watches, and whiskey." I'm like, yeah, we're That's all the it. same mindset. But uh, it's because it's all good stuff. But um, cars have always been just like the watches. I got in them early. I think I was like five or six. Mm-hmm. Um, my cousin, a couple years older than me, he was a huge car guy, and he just. At the time, I was super into planes, like military fighter jets, like commercial airliners, all of it. it was super cool. And then my, my cousin was like, but you can't buy any of that stuff. There's no way you'll ever buy an, an F-16. I'm like, well, that's true, I guess. Because like, cars are accessible. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> so uh, he, he got made a good point. He, he's absolutely right. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, so I haven't been into those since I was younger. And um Again, it's just the tinkering, you know, just my, my old man would always be out there, you know, oil changing the family cars and doing your annual brake service and all that stuff. And, you know, you're just a little kid and you're going to wander up and say, hey, can you go grab me a 14 mil socket? It's like, okay, dad. Yeah. And, and you just kind of get hands on and you kind of learn by doing and, you know, inevitably by high school, I was doing all the oil changes for everyone and changing the winter tires over and just, uh, it just becomes a part of your life that you, you kind of can't let go of because it's just interesting and yeah so yeah japanese cars um and again that's a byproduct of just the family always had them and are you more of a vintage or are you more of a modern car guy daniel and i argue about this all the time he is very much of the mindset that vintage porsche is about as good as you can get uh okay i love modern porsche because of just the sheer amount of engineering behind them and just the bonkers level performance that these things can do. Um, but on that mindset, I think we're at a juncture where cars are evolving and changing so much. And now global legislation has, has basically forced the hand that we're going electric across the world. Um, you know, cars are changing like by the day we can see it. And so because of that, there's a nostalgia towards old school cars and you know, internal combustion and all that. And so we're at a point where you can get hybrids, you can get electric cars, full, full, full-time electric. But now anything that's, you know, internal combustion based, the majority are turbocharged for emissions, for power, for efficiency. But right. now there's me talking to car enthusiast friends, the discussion's all the same. It's like, I kind of miss an old school, normally aspirated car, you know, no turbo, just good down to earth, rev it out. 
Uh, I grew yeah. up with Hondas, so you know, just I'm used to having no torque and have to rev the heck out of this thing to get any power to go anywhere. And but you go back and you drive some of these older cars that uh, have less power, but you know, get a manual in there and, and it forces you to work for it. It's like a mechanical watch. You have to want it. You have to get to know your watch. You interact with it daily. The car's the same. You know, it's doing what you're telling it to do, but it can't do it by itself. It needs you to input. It needs you to help. And so that's very different from now. Cars have so much assisted driving, semi-autonomous, you know, lane change keep assist, and sorry, lane keep assist, and um, that's all fantastic technology. But take that all out. Give yourself a you know a normally aspirated rear drive manual sports car. And it feels so different. And because of that, I think I'm starting to lean more that way. Um, gotcha. But again, you kind of want a modern car for daily driving for the comfort. You know, I, I think your wife hit the nail on the head as far as the guys that like the watches and the cars. There, I, In my opinion, there is a parallel between these things. So when we look at the naturally aspirated manual cars like the Porsches or back in the day the flat six mm-hmm. when you look at those cars it reminds me of like a manually wound watch and then when you look at the turbos that we have today it kind of reminds me of automatic watches and also when we start looking at the electric cars does that then become the quartz crisis and i put that in air quotes <laughs> yeah, is the is. is the electric car the quartz crisis in the car world it really is. And I've used that same analogy with friends that are also, you know, car watch enthusiasts because it's the same disruptive technology where it's like, yeah. this thing's going to kill the internal combustion motor because it functionally will. And you're like, oh, this thing's, you know, it's, I grapple with this personally because having driven some Teslas, having driven you know, many hybrids. So you, you get kind of both pieces of it. You feel like there's something missing. It just doesn't, especially with like an all electric vehicle, you get tons of torque, you get crazy straight line speed. Like it's a fool's errand that now, in my opinion, to mm-hmm. be talking about normally aspirate, sorry, internal combustion cars trying to set crazy zero to 60 times because, yeah, they're, they're fast as heck now. And you know, like a standard M3 now is sub four seconds zero to 60 by clean margin. So that's nothing to scoff at, right? But, uh, you know, you get the right Tesla and, and it'll blow the doors off of them. It's no competition. So electric cars will dominate that kind of thrill. That's what you're looking for. Mm-hmm. But where I'm having trouble with this, for me at least, a huge part of the driving thrill is the the sounds, the vibrations, the noise. You know, all of that feel is almost entirely gone in an electric car. It's so insulated. It's so quiet. And all of a sudden you're looking down and it's just like ludicrous speeds on your dash, but it doesn't feel mm-hmm. like there's no drama, if you will. Uh, and that's probably why there's a renaissance and, and you know, the new GR86 and the BRZ coming to market soon, or like, you know, the new Nissan Z with like the twin turbo V6. Like the fact that these automakers are still putting out old school sports cars like this, uh, it's almost like the last hurrah, I feel. So it's... Maybe now now's the time to kind of jump on board if uh, you've been thinking about it. But it's uh, it's going to be a little sad once this all kind of uh, goes away. And I hope it doesn't go away. Like I mean, just because there is a certain romance of these things. Uh, you and I have had a conversation a while back, and we talked a little bit about um, the car not having to necessarily be super fast. <laughs> and we think I know that you are like you said you're a Honda fan. I think you have an S two thousand in your garage. 
Yes. Um, <laughs> and, and I'm a fan. I don't own one. Um, maybe I will in the future, but I, I, I'm a fan of the, the, the Mazda with like the Mazda Miatas, the, the MX-5, and then also, you know, those Roadsters. It could be a, a Boxster. Um, I, I'm just a huge fan of that. And I think about the Mazda, and it's not a fast car. It's zippy, but with the top down and as small as it is, there's a little bit of thrill when you drive that thing, and you can push that thing to the limits when you're hitting corners and stuff too. So oh. it's it's pretty neat. It's tons of thrill, tons of charm. It's all the same kind of adjectives we throw in the, you know, watches as well. But I think it ultimately boils down to what we were talking about, right? Like you can obviously get very, 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 very fast cars. Like your mm-hmm. standard Toyota Sienna now is as fast as like sports cars were 10 years ago, which is crazy. But um, what's fascinating is when your cars are that fast, you really can't access any of that on the road safely or legally. So it's almost like when you hop into an older car, but you know, it has all the right bits and it, it has enough power to be fun, but it's not overly fast. You can really have some fun with that and not get yourself into too much trouble. And that's probably where Daniel is referring to when he's talking about like the vintage Porsche. Yeah. And that's exactly the argument It's the feel, the, the emotions that come with driving an older product like that. Um, again, it's very much like the mechanical timepiece. Uh, whereas ironically, I, I say all this stuff, but I still gravitate towards these, these newer Porsches because again, it's and that's more of a respect towards just the engineering prowess of the brand and the company. So it's going to lead me to my next question. I don't know. Does Canada have like a Powerball? We do. We have, yeah, it's not as epic as in the States where the numbers get ludicrously large, but we have uh, our, our large lottery is called Auto Max, and it gets up there. I think like the, like it caps, they cap it at about 70 million, I think. Okay. That's still a pretty good amount. Of, if somebody threw 70 million <laughs> Canadian at me, I think I'd be okay. I'd, I'd be very thankful and appreciative. Right? But let's, let's say, for example, Henry, you ended up winning that particular lottery right and now you've got lottery money in your bank what car would be in your garage at that point like what car would you pick up like your dream car oh man no hesitation it'd be uh it would be a 991.2 gt3 rs so it's just i the new the new 992s look nice they look almost a little too big for me they've got really really wide uh, which looks great, but uh, there's something about that that nine on one dot two that's just perfection in my books. That's a great choice, man. That's definitely quick. <laughs> it's it's quick enough. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How about you, man? What would you do? Probably something very similar. Porsche nine eleven GT three RS. Oh uh, yeah, something to that effect. Yeah. It just any iteration of a GT three or a GT three RS. It's you really can't go wrong because um, it just gives you all the because they were designed for the experience, right? Like everything you see everything you read about it the feedback's unanimous is that it just feels like the a precision driver's instrument um you know where something there's other cars out there that are the sledgehammer effect you know just a whole ton of torque a whole ton of power a wall of noise and it's great fun um but there's something about the gt3s particularly i find just so alluring yeah aesthetically they're so beautiful but that being said that would not be my daily driver. I would still. <laughs> it would probably <laughs> rattle your teeth out. <laughs> right, exactly. I don't think it would be fun for too long, but yeah, no. For sure. That would that would be in there. 
So Henry, going back to watches, just because I'm so ADD, um, <laughs> what is on your short list? You know, it's interesting because I've been reading comments on this piece and, and it's kind of divided. You've got people who love it and people who think that it's nothing special or completely wrong, but I personally love it. Uh, it's that new, the, uh, the Ginza, 140th year anniversary edition uh, Alpinus that they yes. just uh, put out. Man, that dial, something about the cobblestone, which I think is really neat because having spent a lot of time in, in Ginza and, and walking around, um, right away when I saw that, I was like, oh, that's like Ginza. And it's funny because, again, my wife's not a huge watch person, but I showed her a picture of it. I didn't say anything. She's like, oh, it looks like cobblestones. I'm like, yeah, they are cobblestones. And she's like, oh, is that for Ginza? I'm like, because we've been there, the Seiko building and everything. Sure. So she knows they're that there's a lot of history uh, for the brand there. So yeah, it is, but, uh, so that piece is really, really interesting. So hopefully you can grab one of those when they come out later, I think October they're supposed to be. Um, mm -hmm. but top of the list right now is something that I always thought I would have gotten earlier, but I still don't have is the SBGW321, the, the GS, which is, I think it's 37 mil, but it's basically the time only, uh, three hander hand wine with the ivory dial, like I think they call it their elegance case. Uh, yes. It's just the perfect time only watch in my books. And a great size too. It's it's a it's a 37 millimeter, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And it's just classy. Yeah. And, and what I love about that, and I think what I love most about watches and cars are, are sort of what I look for is I kind of like things that fly under the radar. I, I don't tend to gravitate towards really loud or shouty things and, and pieces. And so really with that on your wrist, you kind of blend in, like really people wouldn't like stop in the street, like, Oh, you know, that thing's a solid gold Rolex or something, or, you know, right. Breitling super ocean. That's like huge on the wrist. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but that's just subtle, quiet. Does it its job and does its job incredibly well. It really does. Um, I have the bigger brother to that. It's the GS GMT. Oh yeah. Stunning piece too. That is a watch that it's just kind of like very under the radar, but I love that piece. I mean, that that's just one of my favorite. That was actually my first Grand Seiko that I ever purchased. And I think that that's going to stay in my collection for as long as I oh, can. Oh man. You had a great introduction to the brand. Yeah. I love that thing. What's interesting about what you said about the Ginza, you're enamored by the design of the watch. And I'm thinking about earlier in our conversation that you are focused on design, specifically with York and Front, right? And there's a lot of significance in why you picked certain things the way you did. Mm -hmm. And just to kind of circle back to York and Front, when we're looking at that Berard, right? Mm -hmm. Black dial, white dial. My favorite is the white. Oh, good choice. <laughs> I, I lean towards the white one too. The thing that I like about that too, there's just a, there's a few style cues that I really make me focus on that watch. I'm a sucker for the minute track, number one. And so the minute track, that draws my attention. The other thing too is the syringe hands, right? So the syringe hands are another thing. And something that I noticed about your watch that to me is very unique is that second hand. First of all, the syringe hands kind of make you focus on exact time. So if you're setting it or whatever, it goes right to that minute track. The second hand is unique because it has, and you can see it so much more on the white dial, at least in my 
with my aging eyes, right? <laughs> I can see there's that red spot of that second hand and it just kind of, you know, really draws your attention to the time and the seconds and all that. Great, great design keys, my friend. Awesome. Thank you, man. I appreciate that. And it's pretty cool that you brought, like your attention was focused on the second hand itself because um, the backstory there, which I think is fascinating too, is when we were designing the watch, you wanted syringe hands for exactly the reason you said is um, they look great because it's kind of like a sword hand, but with that extra bit of like the longer tip. So that's easier to tell a precise time. Um, so, you know, it's not a hand we came up with that, that hand's been used for eons, but um, so when we were designing the watch, we asked our manufacturing partner, do you have syringe hands or do you have a portfolio that we can look at? And like, yeah, we do. These are the options. And it's like, great, you already have the tooling done. So let's, let's pick this one. We want it finished you know, in, in all rush. That's cool. Um, but then when we started looking at the second hands, we couldn't find one the way we wanted. So that was a decision that Eric and I made to let's go bespoke. Let's pay for the tooling. Let's do a ground up design from scratch. So we designed that second hand. Um, and again, it doesn't look like anything too dramatic, but it's just perfect with application. It's, and that, that longer tip, all in red is something that we wanted mm -hmm. just because who doesn't love a little splash of color for fun and also legibility. Yeah. It, it really helps. It's so unique. I'm hoping, you know, time has flown. <laughs> it really has, man. It really has. I'm looking at the time right now. We're over an hour. And for all those listeners that are listening, thank you for still being here. We appreciate you uh, tuning in and listening to us. But I feel like if you're open to it, if we can maybe do a round two and just really zone in on your confront, you as a designer, a developer, a, a, a you know, a watchmaker and the brand of your confront, if we could do that in the future, that'd, that'd be awesome. Oh, I would love to, uh, you know, obviously it's something that, uh, you know, I've talked about in terms of the brand and some of the backstory and it's something that I'm super passionate about. So it would be great to, to jump on again. Yeah. I'd love that. Was there anything you wanted to share about any um, projects that you're working on, watch-related projects, possibly? I think right now, like ultimately, uh, we're working through our first series with Your Confront, and it's been an incredible journey so far. Because I think of all the people we've met through that project, um, mm -hmm. you know, yourself included, it's been a heck of a ride, and I think it's something that will continue to evolve, and hopefully, more friends to be made. Um, but I, uh, we had a bit of a, a, a creative like brainstorming session earlier this year when I had some downtime. And so we, um, essentially mocked up our next three watches. So there, there's oh, more nice. to come, but, uh, you know, I, I don't want to bite off more than I can chew yet quite yet. So we'll grind through series one and then, uh, we'll, we'll look to something exciting next. Very cool. Do you mind sharing how our listeners can get a hold of you? Yeah, I think, uh, so for the personal stuff, for the Seiko stuff, uh, at Jubhat, um, is probably the way to go. And actually, you know what, I'll tell you that story because I get to ask this all the time. It's like, where does Jubhat come from? What is, what is a Jubhat? Uh, <laughs> it's, it, it's a, it doesn't mean anything in particular other than we have two dogs, uh, one named Hatchy and the other one's named Zeb, Z-E-B, excuse me. And my sister just came up with these funky pet names. She calls Hatchy Hattie and Zeb Jobby. And so Jobby and Hat uh, just needed a handle. So <laughs> there, nice. there you go. But uh, that's, cool. it's a bit of a mystery, that one. 
Uh, but that's probably the best way. And of course, your confront is, uh, I think the handle is your front watches on, on the gram. Plenty of imagery. And of course, uh, don't be shy with uh, comments or DMs. Uh, always happy to engage and interact. That sounds great. Henry, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure spending time with you this afternoon. I got to learn way more about you that I'm excited about. And uh, I'm excited to continue following your journey with not just with at Jub Hat, but also with York in front. So hopefully, like we were talking a little bit earlier, we can do a round two. And um, again, I appreciate your time today. Thanks so much, uh, Ernesto. And uh, super fun. Uh, actually had way more fun than I, I thought I would. Not that that's uh, a knock against you, but uh, always a little bit nervous to, to jump on uh, and knowing that others will be listening, but hopefully people enjoyed and uh, hopefully that uh, there's some takeaways, some things learned and uh, some thoughts generated. So thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. And thank you everybody so much for listening and spending time with us on Bezel Banter. Please hit the show notes for more details and links. You can follow us on Instagram. I'm at Ernesto Guapo 72 and you can follow the show at, at Bezel Banter Media for any updates and new episodes. If you have any questions for us, please feel free to reach out to us on bezelbanter at gmail.com. And please subscribe and review wherever you find your podcast because it truly helps us out. Additionally, you can grab this episode and other episodes at www.bezelbanter.com. Thanks again, and we look forward to catching up with you soon on another episode of Bezel Banter. Thank you. Thank you.